0: 1,000 CFRC programmers agree.
1: Radio won't forget your
0: birthday.
2: Radio will call you the next morning. Radio will call your boss, pretending it's your mother
0: when you need a day off, but can't bring yourself to lie that you're sick. At this time of year, your radio station wants you to know that it loves you. Radio will call your
3: birthday. You are listening to Write of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM, an entirely student-run initiative by the Queen's International Affairs Association. We aim to make international affairs more engaging and accessible for the Queen's community and beyond through featuring unique personal experiences. I am Emily Hughes, one of the producers of the show. This is our first episode for the 2014-2015 season. We are excited to bring you two interviews focused around anti-corruption and white-collar crime. Quinn Giordano and Holly Hondrick will start off this episode with an interview with Queen's graduate student Alexander Murar. Alexander studies white-collar crime. He's specifically interested in how organizational offenders are classified in criminal law. He gives us an overview of white-collar crime and anti-corruption, the conditions in which it is likely to take place, and clarification of key concepts. After that, you'll hear an interview by my co-producer, Lauren Cardinal, and I with the award-winning Hungarian investigative journalist Attila Mong. We speak about Attila's personal experiences. But first, here's Quinn and Holly with Alexander Murar.
4: Thank you very much for squeezing us in. So we just want to begin um, by asking you about yourself and particularly the subject matter of your master's. We understand you did, mm. you focused on white-collar crime, I think, uh, particularly in Canada and the United States.
5: Yeah, so
2: so I did my master's at Queen's uh, in sociology, and specific, specifically my, my topic was on corporate crime, which we can, we can, we can get into a little bit later on, which yeah. is one form of white-collar crime. And I was interested in looking at how organizational offenders are kind of classified in in Canadian criminal law, and so the my research examined was the liability rules and how those have been constructed and applied through through cases, and then I did an analysis of uh, the socio legal environment of, of of corporate crime and and how it's in, and how the construction of laws and and its practices are. Um, influenced by that environment so what
4: is um, the basic just for our listeners the basic definition of white collar crime it's obviously crime committed in corporate environment do you have mm-hmm. a specific op- uh, definition you're operating on for your master's
2: yeah definitely so um i mean honestly one of the issues in the field is that we kind of have some conceptual ambiguity around the concept it's, you know it's very historically based and over time it's uh you know it's it's been kind of debated extensively and i think the approach that i take in a lot of other scholars take um, is to view white-collar crime almost as like an umbrella concept. Uh, so think of it as like there's two forms of white-collar crime. And that actually helps us to understand uh, its extent or even its prevalence. So uh, one of them would be occupational crime. And uh, occupational crime pretty much just refers to the illegal practices committed uh, in relation to one's employment uh, or their occupational duties. So think of like a like a chief financial officer who Maybe fudges the numbers a little bit in their in their accounting practices, right. and they register a profit just so they can activate their bonus. Or a more classic example of an investment banker uh, who's running a Ponzi scheme. So only in relation to um, his or her employment can the opportunity arise for for personal for personal gain. So that's occupational crime, which is very very helpful at explaining a large chunk of white collar crime. The other one I mentioned earlier was was corporate crime, and uh, now corporate crime is really interesting because. It examines illegal behaviors, but in some cases, legal behaviors that are uh, that are committed by employees of the company or the corporation or the corporate structure to benefit not the individual person, as in the case of occupational crime, but to benefit the company uh, in itself. So think of like a senior manager uh, who's deciding, you know what, I, you know, they cannot, I can't afford to uh, purchase uh, a safer production equipment for factory operations because of cost savings, or I don't really want to invest in safety training for workers. And as a result of that, say, a worker dies, and that would be considered a form of negligence, which would be considered considered corporate crime. So occupational crime and corporate crime are, are two ways of, of understanding the extent and prevalence of white-collar crime.
0: At what point does the corporate attitude of just trying to take advantage of every available loophole actually cross into the territory of crime?
2: It's difficult to answer that question, to be honest, because, of course, there's some Companies that that will actively seek those uh, loopholes in the sense of, you know, we just want to spend money on something. Is that really considered criminal in some state, in some instances, especially when someone dies, mm. it, it becomes infinitely more complicated when it comes to financial uh, aspects of, of corporate crime or, uh, or, or white collar crime generally.
4: Now, you mentioned the uh, Ponzi scheme, and as Quinn pointed out to me earlier, one form of white-collar crime I think is most commonly maybe referenced in our kind of everyday vocabulary is the Ponzi scheme. How does mm-hmm. this scheme operate?
2: Well, um, so to to an eager client looking to invest their capital, I mean, a, a Ponzi scheme, it may look like any other investment business. So we may have the, the fancy office and, you know, in a big city, a big financial city. Uh, I may have the professional support staff. They could even have great references from a uh, From clients and even the media. Sometimes the media actually does do profiles of businesses. So there may be this legitimate, this air of legitimacy surrounding operations. However, behind this facade really is a conscious and I would say calculated enterprise designed to profit from deception, cheating, and ultimately stealing. But I mean, simply put, the Ponzi scheme just involves. Paying long-term or long-standing members with money from new participants. So instead of actually taking clients' money and investing it or, or selling products to the public, they just use new money to pay off existing clients. So of course, you know, a consistent flow of money is required to continue the scheme. So if if a if a large amount of investors want to cash out, or there's little growth in attracting new investors, you know, the scheme essentially collapses. And as you mentioned with the Madoff, I mean that was. Probably one of the biggest issues was during the market downturn in 2008, 2009, a lot of investors simply just want to take their money out and it collapsed.
0: Could you uh, maybe just elaborate on the Madoff scandal a little bit? <clears throat> what was it that made uh, the Madoff scandal so unique and why is it such a, now it's kind of an iconic mm-hmm. example of all the things that we've come to hate about
2: white collar <laughs> crime? I think there are two Big things that made it rather unique. I think on on in one sense it was the scale. By far, it is the largest financial fraud uh, in the United States. About sixty five billion dollars was defrauded from clients uh, over two decades, and actually that time is actually quite important. You know, I think it, Madoff himself claimed that you know he started his scheme in nineteen ninety one. It was quite simple. It just you know took his clients' monies, offered them this great return on investment, and you know put it into his Personal bank account, and if it, if this clients wanted their money back, he would repay them. But of course, as I just mentioned, in, in two thousand eight, there were difficulties in him repaying that because so many people wanted to to get that investment out. And so uh, over this time, it was interesting because the the scale of it really did expose in a sense, a flawed regulatory system. Yeah, there were speculation from other Wall Street players that you know his numbers were, were not legitimate. Like it, it's, it's highly unlikely someone is giving this high amount of return year over year. Mm-hmm. So in the end, it wasn't the financial regulatory system that caught him. Actually, it was his son who, who alerted the authorities. So scale is one unique aspect of it. I think the other one, which a lot of people i think sympathize with is the harm aspect of course there was a lot of companies that lost money in, in in investing in his his operations but on that more personal level the scheme demonstrated how individualized can be or you know could be significantly damaged from this form of white collar crime i even remember uh, watching a television interview and uh you know and it was horrible watching this older woman living in New York saying, you know, I lost my life savings. I'm probably going to have to move out of my house or my apartment. And I think on that personal level, a lot of people can uh, sympathize or even empathize with that significant damage to people's personal lives.
4: And you mentioned that it was a very flawed regulatory system in the U.S. that failed to catch uh, Madoff. And does <coughs> so would this happen in Canada or is our regulatory system any different than the U.S. that would allow hmm. us to maybe catch these schemes before they get to the scale and size of the Madoff scandal?
2: There's no doubt that The scheme does not discriminate at the border. You know, there has been countless cases of Ponzi schemes operating in Canada. I would say, however, that the scale is perhaps not very similar. I think the largest one that I'm aware of is about $400 million, which is still a significant amount of money, but obviously it pales in comparison of $65 billion. However, also, I mean, the the, the harm aspect is quite similar. You know, people in Canada, even if it's small people like pensioners or just people looking to invest extra extra uh, capital. You know, people can still lose their livelihoods in their way of life. And that can be very humiliating to think that someone can be duped into this. And it can be even devastating in terms of their financial security. Oh, Is sorry, it
0: ever possible to compensate victims of these kinds of schemes?
2: It's very difficult because in, in most cases, um, you know, it gets so... Actually, well, in the in the Mayoff incident, you know, there are still court cases going on, trying to recover assets and then divvying them, uh, divvying, dividing them up into, into those clients who are, who are defrauded. Uh, in Canada, it's similarly as as complicated. If it, if the you know, if money was just lost or was spent, it's very difficult to recover those assets in a in a sh- relatively short amount of time.
4: Do these schemes have any people they particularly target, or is it really anyone who is, I guess, susceptible? To these people, Is anyone particularly susceptible to these sorts of masterminds who operate mm-hmm. these uh, schemes?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think it's it's people who have very easy access to capital. So think of pretty much almost anyone who's working or anyone who is a pensioner or or is looking to invest extra money. That's how they manage to be convincing is they 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 look for people who are willing to get their money uh, to get to get return on their on their capital. And so when someone's offering you you know twenty five percent, thirty percent return on your investment and they're and they're saying you know, it's safe and secure, you can get your principal at any time, you know that sounds reassuring and but of course they try to sell it up and saying there's really there's no risk to it.
4: Now, in sociology, you talk a lot about kind of profiling victims. As You just said there's a bit of a profile of a victim, someone who has access to capital. We -hmm. also talk about profiles of perpetrators, obviously. So Mm -hmm. common characteristics that perpetrators have. Mm -hmm. So are there specific characteristics that people have that seem to kind of lead this behavior, especially given the very risky, like it's a very risky endeavor. It seems almost inevitable that eventually the scheme will Mm -hmm. pop. So what causes people or what types of people, I should say, um, Mm -hmm. if any, engage in this type of behavior?
2: Yeah, that's definitely a very interesting question, and it uh, and it definitely speaks to the heart of essentially why does white-collar crime happen? And uh, research in the area is actually quite fascinating um, in that regard. So, for instance, there's interesting research that asks what you just mentioned, you know, why certain individuals are willing, were willing to commit these crimes. And at its individual level, it's very it, personality traits like motivation or opportunity and access become extremely relevant, uh, especially when we contextualize these traits within an economic and a political system defined by capitalism, and that's important because in a capitalist society, you know, there's there's often pressures uh, or even strains to succeed, which may motivate some people to engage in this level of criminality. I also think it's important to remember, especially in North American society, that success often means accepting that um, you know things like material goods are essential for a happy life, which means motivation to possess those material goods is is really a strong predictor. Of this drive to acquire wealth into into win, so to speak. So I'm not too sure if there's one answer to that question, but I definitely liken the emphasis on short-term gains and this motivation to win, so to speak, to some of the most blatant attempts to acquire wealth, such as through Ponzi schemes.
0: What is the end game <clears throat> of a Ponzi scheme? If you're somebody like Bernie Madoff, mm-hmm. uh, after all this time, was his plan essentially to just continue to <clears throat> defraud people until eventually he died, or mm-hmm. was there an escape?
2: But what I found interesting about the the incident in particular was, you know, he was in business for uh, since about the 60s. Um, but he admitted that he only really started doing this type of sc- scheme, for instance, in 1991. And it lasted until about 2008, 2009. So it's like maybe there's something that happens in that period where it's, you know, someone, someone may want to uh, continue to uphold a reputation in the community, especially in the business community, where often – in that type of business, you know, it, if you if you're not growing, you're not winning, you're not successful, you don't look very good. So I think that actually does play a big part of it, a part of it. But there's tons of factors that we could discuss that could explain. I mean, human behavior is very complicated. So, yeah, um, but it's there's tons of factors that could explain why people do certain things.
0: I think one factor that you just touched upon that's that's really important to keep in mind just in the world of uh, corporate crime. Is this idea of, of winning, and mm-hmm. the the essential nature of just having to win, and not necessarily the desire to be a part of building a company and mm-hmm. uh, you know building a product, but just winning at any cost? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that attitude factor into corporate crime?
2: Corporate crime specifically, I think it's it, that's actually complicated because corporate crime looks at white collar crime uh, as you know it. Obviously, corporations are. People run this. So, of course, there's people who have to um, you know run the company, and so people are very important. But like, as I mentioned, the difference between that and occupational crime is you know, is this for personal gain or is it for the benefit of the company?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think that's complicated. Uh, of course, there'll be people who are very aggressive and very competitive, and they are naturally attracted to certain types of businesses, especially in the financial sector. But of course, not every financial, company or or business person is criminal in nature. Uh, Maybe some of the conditions exacerbate that, but there's definitely specific things that could potentially put people over the edge.
4: Now, um, you talked a little bit about kind of the typical look of mm-hmm. a, maybe, a white-collar crime, like some of them have very professional, mm-hmm. um, they have a very, very strong air of legitimacy. And for mm-hmm. many of us, um, we think about white-collar crime like the media portrayals, the very sensationalized, Leonardo DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> oh, yeah. examples. Yep. So do you think that this is in any way accurate or comparable to the real life the kind of realities of white-collar crime? This Is the way that media portrays these schemes, these you know huge, sensationalized, very professional types of crimes. Is that accurate um, in comparison with your empirical data?
2: There's no doubt that the media favors one particular form of crime. And I think that definitely has significant implications for how our culture perceives crime. I would say, however, that these cases are incredibly complicated. Um, just think of any kind of financial related uh, Ponzi scheme or insurance fraud. There just isn't a lot of resources to investigate and prosecute these crimes compared to more traditional abuse of crime like assault or murder. Yet they do share the exact same liability rules for, for criminal offenses. You still have to establish criminal intent, uh, the criminal act, and that's very complicated, especially in financial-related areas where you're dealing with just mass amounts of documents, and uh, that, that's very complicated. So I think you know, white-collar crime just doesn't fit into how the media delivers news to their audience in this uh, you know, one-minute clip environment or with the strategy of it bleeds, it leads. Uh, but but since you brought up the Wolf of Wall Street, I think it actually was an interesting depiction of white-collar crime. Obviously, it was it was quite crude and extravagant in its depictions of business culture and the main character's lifestyle. But in a sense, it was somewhat insightful of how of demonstrating how quickly offenders forget or even care about what they're doing is is morally and ethically wrong. It just that insult to injury, actually, I was I was I was not at all surprised that the real life main character of the film spent just 22 months in prison. Uh, but he also like didn't. He also wrote the book that was adapted into the film, and he actually continues to make money through speaking engagements about his experiences. I think last time I looked it up, it was about thirty thousand uh, dollars per, per engagement. And so I think, I mean, granted, he's trying to pay back restitution to the victims. But the fact that he is considered a legitimate, quote unquote, motivational speaker speaks volumes to the value some assign to uh, highly aggressive and competitive people, and. In that sense I'm, I'm very deeply concerned about that aspect of our media culture and how it depicts white collar crime
4: do you have any insights on why perhaps we glorify these criminals as they are you know convicted criminals <clears throat> over the classic criminals who we tend to vilify obviously the, the murders the thieves mm-hmm. do you have you studied any reasons as to why that may be that we and the media in particular really glorify these people
2: um i just think it's it's a matter of visibility um you know if you know people are concerned about if someone's going to break into their car or their home or you know, those are visible aspects. They may even see assaults in the street or even hear about murders that happen just down the block. And so people perceive that that's more legitimate. Like I can actually be harmed by that. But as a lot of the research has demonstrated, there's more harm that comes out of white collar crime, but they just no one really just understands that connection. Of course, and as I just mentioned, the the media tends to, give what the audience wants. They want to understand what's happening when it comes to street crime, things that could potentially affect them. And so that's why the media has these strategies designed to to kind of meet that uh, audience need.
4: So you mentioned that there is a lot more harm in white collar crime than people realize. What is the prevalence? I don't know if you can give kind of some Mm -hmm. sort of number of people to understand in Canada and the US of white collar crime.
2: Yeah, actually in the in the field of white collar crime, it's um it's actually notoriously difficult to determine its extent or prevalence even to an approximate level. Uh for starters, I mean governments do not track white collar crime to the, to the same extent as traditional crime where we have, you know, police report uh, police reported crime data, victimization surveys on assaults and other forms of traditional crime and to be to be honest, I mean Statistics Canada does a great job of providing those reports, but it just doesn't pale in comparison to the level of uh, tracking for white collar crime, and as I mentioned before, you know another the, the issue is you know this conceptual ambiguity, and, and the one approach that I mentioned is very good at determining its extent. Um, I will say that, however, uh, there one of the aspects that, from a I would say from a qualitative sense, that that does help us understand the prevalence is viewing white collar crime as producing social harm. And when we look at that, we can understand it through two dimensions. One is um, social, where we can look at environmental pollution and how that affects your everyday citizen, or or as I mentioned before, how worker health and safety. The other one is financial. So, of course, this is just these significant frauds and forgeries against consumers, even against honest businesses, that overall affect our economy's health and attractiveness as well. So I think there's actually, well, actually, one of the two most well-known quantitative facts about white-collar crime that actually interested me into the field, which um, is, you know, it's it's reproduced often, and even though we don't have these issues, it's it's quite well known, is that the economic costs of white-collar crime far away any total financial costs associated with, associated with conventional street crime? So think of all the robberies and thefts wow, that occur yeah. in a year. All the total of that street crime does not outweigh the total economic cost of white-collar crime. And the other one, which perhaps shocked me the most, was that white-collar crime, whether indirectly or directly, especially in the corporate environment, uh, is responsible for more death than all the homicides put together in a year. So at a minimum, I mean, I'd be very confident to say that despite some of these conceptual issues of what is really considered white-collar crime and some of the tracking issues, you know, I'd be confident to say that the prevalence of white collar crime is is overwhelming, and it's actually quite ubiquitous.
0: Are there any prescriptions for how we could deal with uh, what you're describing as a very very significant and <clears throat> almost systemic problem?
2: Uh, so, there's definitely mechanisms that are in place. I, I would I would agree with that, and and there's definitely a complex system of criminal, civil, and administrative regulations and laws that do govern areas pertinent to uh, to white collar crime. So, so if we take financial white collar crime. In Ontario, we have uh, the Ontario Securities Commission, right? I think their mandate is to enforce securities regulation legislation. Relatively recently, in in 2003, I believe the RCMP at the federal level uh, established their uh, integrated market enforcement team, which investigates and prosecutes criminal uh, capital markets fraud. Now, on, on the social aspect, um, so things like environmental pollution and worker health and safety, and in some sense, that lo- those lower level financial areas, you know, we do have regulatory systems that are uh, that have been established to, state, for instance, Environment Canada, which is designed to enforce and encourage compliance with uh, environmental matters. And then, of course, we have provincial health and safety systems uh, to deal with those labor-related issues.
0: What can be done at the individual level?
2: So, it, I mean, that depends. So if we're looking at financial white-collar crime, you know, so take the Ponzi for Ponzi, uh, Ponzi scheme for, uh, as an example. If we if you're looking to invest your money, I mean, there's there's definitely tons of tips that a lot of financial experts can, you know, offer to you. You know, just be careful, do your homework, you know, do your research and, and who you're investing in. Um, it becomes a little more complicated with with the social aspects of white collar crime because you know, as as much as I may be aware of environmental matters, I, you know, I I still I still have to breathe air and that could be polluted or I could still live near um, you know chemical air area, industrial areas which could affect my health directly. And actually, that's that's quite a big, significant problem for particularly marginalized communities in Canada. Um, so there's a bunch of things that that you could do. Uh, it just depends on what type of offense is happening to you. And that, as as we're all aware, white collar crime. There's there's a lot of offenses that can occur.
0: Again, just on the individual level, is there anything <clears throat> that can be done to properly identify something that could potentially be a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme or some mm-hmm. kind of fraud?
2: I mean, like, as I mentioned, doing your research and your homework is is quite important um i mean of course there could be telltale signs such as if, it, if it's just someone coming to your door you may be a little suspicious about that in a sense be skeptical you know yeah it's nothing wrong with trying to invest your money just be cautious of the risks that could be potentially associated with whatever adventure um, venture you're you're seeking
4: you mentioned the fairly staggering data just about the harm caused by white collar crime compared with the harm caused by what we call the typical forms of crime, like robbery, murder, um, etc. Has the Canadian government responded in like proportion to this data? Like, do you find the resources spent to address white collar crime is proportional to the harm that is uh, caused by it?
2: So, part of my research actually um, looked at some aspects of proportionality. So, what I did was I very much focused on. Um, worker health and safety cases where there were death in the workplace as a result of, of negligence, and I personally found that there was a disproportionality between penalties that were assigned um, to the to, to the amount of harm that was caused to save the families or the communities in Canada. At least I can I can definitely say that there is a bifurcated regulatory system uh, that does affect some of this proportionality. So, for instance, there's a bifurcated system between. Uh, administrative and, and criminal regimes for white-collar offenses. So administrative systems tend to promote compliance and warnings and maybe fines, And as as we're aware, criminal regimes tend to emphasize you know stigma for committing a morally uh, condemnable act or you know reducing people's freedom by putting them in prison. Now, obviously for for traditional crime, you know when we see someone physically sell someone, it's quite clear that this offender is under the jurisdiction of criminal regulation. they you know they've committed offense there probably be arrested charged prosecuted and maybe sentenced however for the for the most prominent types of white collar crimes so think of the environmental health and safety and financial areas they are increasingly being regulated through the administrative system for seemingly criminal offenses and there's a bunch of reasons why this 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 happens you know maybe a lot of lawyers and police want to you know they they elect the lower standard of proof the less complex offenses lack of criminal protections for an accused grandson under the charter. But I would say it, it's definitely not out of the ordinary that the administrative regulatory system is actually seen as offering a more certain, faster system for prosecuting certain types of white collar crime. And essentially, so this this type of bifurcated system creates these incentives for the state to avoid uh, criminal regulation uh, for offenses, which affects, obviously, the proportionality aspect, as you mentioned. And also, it reduces things like effectiveness of properly condemning you know, morally outrageous behavior from white-collar criminals. Legislation is undoubtedly important in in giving enforcement powers, but, you know, I think it's important to, you know, government has to be a trustworthy ally in providing significant resources. I personally don't think there's been enough resources uh, devoted to this in in traditional policing and prosecuting environments for for numerous reasons. Also, as I mentioned, um, white-collar crime involves organizational offenders who play a large part in facilitating environmental health and safety violations and, and financial aid of harm that is still under-investigated, under-prosecuted. Sentences are very disproportional to the amount of harm caused. And so I think there is room for improvement in this regard, both in terms of legislation and resources, and government absolutely has to be a, a, a key trustworthy ally in, in this regard. And so I think the key question moving forward is you know will it take a uh, you know a Madoff-like incident in Canada or the death of multiple people from from corporate misconduct to convince governments that white-collar crime is um, is such a threat to our livelihood and our way of life that we need to do more to combat this threat? Personally, I hope it doesn't. I, I certainly hope it doesn't come to that, and definitely, you know, government can can play a large part in in, in rectifying some of the in, or combating some of these threats.
3: That was an interview by Holly Hondrick and Quinn Giordano with Queen's graduate student Alexander Marar on anti-corruption and white-collar crime for Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. Next up on Right of Reply is an interview by my co-producer Lauren Cardinal and I. We spoke to Attila Mong, an award-winning investigative journalist currently living in Berlin. Attila is currently working in Berlin as the Ashoka storyteller in residence. Ashoka has partnered with the Berlin School of Creative Leadership to offer journalists the opportunity to become storytellers of social change. Attila has extensive experience in anti-corruption investigative journalism. In 2003, he discovered one of the biggest bank fraud scandals in Hungary's history, resulting in him being awarded the prestigious Soma and Pulitzer Memorial Prizes. Our conversation, as you will hear shortly, centers around Attila's experiences in investigating anti-corruption and white-collar crime. Highlights of our conversation include discussion on the criminal underworld, failures of the Hungarian justice systems, corrupt financial institutions in the European Union, and Attila's personal experiences. Here he is. Let's just jump right into it. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Why did you pursue a career in investigative journalism?
1: Well, I started my career as a journalist uh, during the 1990s as a radio journalist and uh, my background is uh, economy so I did um, business and economic studies and when I went to work for the Hungarian public radio it was right after the fall of uh, communism so the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there were very few journalists uh, trained in uh, economy, uh, very few people who knew how the stock exchange works and how the economy works. So the radio, the national public radio people, were very much interested in hiring me. And immediately, I uh, had to work on very tough uh, economic and business topics. So very quickly, these complex issues and complex you know economic uh, issues found me and i was also fascinated because i liked uh, to study complex issues and also how how businesses and companies work and uh, so very quickly uh, i had to report on how companies work how big privatization deals uh, are managed so very quickly i was very close to deals which were Um, dubious or um, a lot of suspicion uh, around fraud and corruption. So very quickly I became involved in uh, topics which needed investigative skills. So by the uh, mid-1990s and especially by the end of the 1990s, I was very much involved in in these topics. And I I was um, covering banks and financial institutions, which were of course very close to uh, any uh, deals which, uh, which we were, uh, were supposed to, or which we, we were supposing to be corrupt. So very quickly, I was just submerged into complex issues uh, surrounding corruption and business.
3: Being surrounded by these corruption issues, I can imagine that as an investigative journalist, you must have been exposed to situations of risks. Can you speak to any dangerous or maybe tense situations in your work?
1: At the beginning of my career, so you have to know that Hungary and uh, uh, Eastern Europe or the Eastern European countries which already joined uh, the European Union, at least most of them, uh, are not life-threatening dangers for journalists. I mean, it depends on topics you cover, but in all these countries from Poland to Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary and all these uh, countries which joined from Eastern Europe um, uh, very early the European Union, Uh, There are dangers and risks for journalists, but if you don't cover the criminal underworld um, You don't necessarily have um, Like life-threatening dangerous uh, situations you can have a lot of pressure and you can have a lot of tough moments, but not uh, moments uh, comparable to other countries in Eastern Europe Ukraine or Russia or uh, the Balkans um, luckily so um, But also it depends on the topics you cover. So at the beginning of my career, I said, okay, I'm covering financial institutions and banks, which uh, have hopefully nothing to do with the criminal underworld. So until the moment I cover, I don't cover the criminal underworld, I will not be exposed to like very risky situations. But the the problem with investigative topics very often and uh, criminal activities and fraudulent activities in the financial sector that uh, and also in in these countries in eastern europe that very often you cannot uh clearly divide uh you cannot clearly spot the line between the underworld and the um the normal world so criminal activities are very often linked to uh, how financial institutions are working so money exchange can result very often in, in uh, like dubious people uh working in this sector so it it was very often not easy to to know until what like limits uh, I should cover certain topics so yes uh i had like risky and uh, dangerous uh, situations but it was more like uh, pressure phone calls and sometimes like um Threat or or just um, people alluding to what would happen if uh, my sources would be revealed. So these kinds of um, soft threat uh, I had during the career, but life-threatening situations I haven't had. Luckily,
3: I mean, was this kind of situation true for that two thousand three, two thousand four? banking fraud scandal that you uncovered in hungary yeah
1: yeah yeah. because this was a typical uh, case where you couldn't spot clearly where the criminal or the underworld the mafia or the mob uh, finishes and where the white-collar crime starts i was uh, very much focusing on the white-collar crime uh, part of this banking fraud so very very briefly the case was uh, about banking employees and high-ranking bank directors basically embezzling uh, money uh, from the bank with a very complex uh, scheme and part of the money uh, was channeled into party and political financing and uh, Since the money was uh, Just in a very simple way was transferred to offshore uh, Havens and from those off- offshore havens transferred back to Hungary using uh, Intermediaries and shell companies and people into in the money exchange business uh, And the money was finally distributed back in Hungary by cash to politicians and uh, important like officials Uh, this cash element uh, brought into the picture of uh, People who were not at all uh, people we would consider white color white collar criminals. These were really like mobsters so uh, uh, while covering this um, case, I was focusing on the on 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 everything which happened inside the bank, so inside dealings uh, at the bank, and not very much focusing on um, on how the cash was finally produced and how the cash was delivered to uh, to people, because there clearly there were people coming from foreign countries or Middle Eastern countries. Uh, uh, people dealing with uh money uh, exchange business and there uh the situation was seemed to be much riskier and also in in these um like covering this uh case clearly the secret services were um involved and they were very uh closely watching uh my journalistic activities and so you had to be like very careful especially um like protecting your sources and it was not Yet the time of uh, of of the internet, I mean, there was internet, but there was not so it was not so widespread, and there were absolutely different uh, precautionary measures you had to make uh, as opposed to now. I mean, now you have to be really really conscious how your data and emails and privacy is protected, and how you can protect your sources uh, online and uh, using different uh, very complex IT. Uh, systems. At the time, it was more like the traditional way of protecting your sources.
3: This sounds like it was a truly international case of corruption and white collar crime. How widespread was it?
1: It was international in the sense that um, uh, the beneficiaries of the schemes were Hungarian and Hungarians and uh, the people who uh, were Uh, designing the scheme were also Hungarians the only international element in the uh, Affair was that they were using the international financial system to to hide The trail the money trail and hide the people behind the whole scheme. So they were usually using offshore companies um, and different offshore havens, so that was the international element and also the international element was that the, the bank was the bank had an international owner so it had a very uh, well known european bank uh, in the background so that was that added uh, of course um, a lot of interesting elements to the whole business because it was not, it was an international uh, case in that sense. So it was finally a Belgium, Belgian bank uh, behind. So there was some interest uh, even from the European press at the time, and especially the Belgian and the Dutch press.
3: My co-producer Lauren Cardinal is actually in the studio with me right now, and she would like to jump in with a question or two, if that's okay.
5: Um, so. What kind of conditions do you think lead to corruption taking place? You talked about how communism had just um, ended in Hungary in the 90s. So do you think there was anything that made Hungary especially prone to this form of crime?
1: Well, I think all these uh, Eastern European countries are prone to corruption and were prone and are are still uh, prone to corruption. First of all, there is a long tradition of... um, of trying to um, uh, evade uh, the system and trying to use different tricks against the system. All these countries were uh, under different kinds of occupations, so Soviet occupation, Turkish occupation. In the case of Hungary, there was Austrian influence as well for centuries and decades. So people are, um, are accustomed to to using uh, tricks uh, to survive basically to survive against occupation and to su- to survive against the system so this is very much culturally um, embedded in, in the system not respecting the rules uh, trying to find the loopholes so it's very much ingrained uh, in the system and when uh, you know uh, the communism uh, communism fell and uh, Capitalism started that was especially at the very beginning. It was a very much unregulated uh, Capitalism which we often call wild capitalism So it was a big a time of big opportunities for a lot of people which um, Helped in this sense uh, corruption and also uh Corruption is always uh, Corruption has always better chances when uh, the integrity of state institutions uh, Is not uh, perfect to say the least Officials are underpaid which was the case in um, After the fall of communism in Hungary, so there was a lot of opportunity for people who, who wanted to to um, earn money very quickly uh, and uh, using illegal Schemes. Also, you have to know that uh, when these changes happened, I mean, the legislation uh, and the rules and the laws were just trying to catch up and legislators were just trying to catch up with the quick changes. So very often there were no laws and there were no legislation. Uh, so it was easy to... Uh, to 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 use all these kinds of um, business dealings, because there were no rules and no legislation to uh, prohibit them.
3: I mean, based on this line of thinking, today, is there less potential for corruption, less potential for white collar crime? Or is it just as prevalent as ever? What are your opinions on that?
1: Well, the techniques and the uh, methods are changing. Hungary is now part of the European Union, so a lot of uh, different kinds of European legislations are valid uh, for Hungary. So I, I think it's just it became just more complex. I mean, culturally, uh, this kind of culture will not change very quickly. So I think all these countries in Eastern Europe are still very, very corrupt. Uh, but it's much more difficult, of course, <laughs> and uh, it requires much more complex uh, methods and also um, I Think journalism has also changed and the public attention has also changed So there are a lot of you know, it's always like a, a question of uh, the policemen and the thieves who are behind or uh, ahead of the other mean methods are uh, developing In the criminal world and in the corruption world as well, but our methods, uh, I mean, journalism methods are developing, and also the law enforcement is better prepared, uh, hopefully, to these challenges. Corruption is a problem everywhere. It's uh, the 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 only question is how you can how strong are the institutions uh, which. uh, can be a, a counterweight uh, to to these corrupt uh, methods. So, how strong the law enforcement is, how strong the judiciary system is, and how strong the whole uh, environment, uh, including uh, media, how strong um, uh, media is, which can counter corruption. So, I think we have to accept that. Uh, there will be always uh, corrupt people, and there will always be where money is and where financial transactions are, where people want to get rich and greed. Where greed is uh, there, there will always be corruption. The only question is how you can counter and how strong the institutions are. And in the, in that sense, there are huge differences in the world because uh, I, I mean, I was in Norway two years ago and Norwegian journalists were just complaining how uh, corrupt certain systems are in Norway but I mean the level of corruption in Norway has nothing to do with the level of corruption in Eastern European countries so of course there are problems uh, in Norway too and it's very good that Norwegian journalists are uh, very much uh, conscious of uh, what's happening uh, around them and how they can fight against it but I mean the levels are really different I'm also working in um, training journalists in Bangladesh uh, which is like one of the most corrupt countries in the world and uh, definitely we see the differences between Eastern Europe and Bangladesh so uh, or all these countries in southeast Southeast Asia which are much much more corrupt than uh, all these all the countries where in Eastern Europe where I, I was working so there are Levels of difference, of
3: course. I mean, I think traditionally when dealing with questions of anti-corruption and white-collar crime, I think to look towards institutions. Um, You published a book on the reasons why the Hungarian justice system, an institution, had performed poorly concerning white-collar crime. What were your findings on this?
1: Yeah the uh, the idea of, of the book was I, I wrote the book together with a uh, a colleague of mine an investigative journalist uh whom with whom we work together on on uh many like investigative uh topics and uh she and I uh started to think about the the, the difficulty uh of the justice system because we what we were experiencing was that very often, journalists uh, in Hungary investigated very complex and tough uh, topics. But and we had the impression that we really revealed, like criminal activities, and uh, this. Very often, we were just showing the smoking gun. Mm-hmm. So here you have the proofs. Here you have the people who did it. So we thought that it would be really easy to uh, investigate uh, these crimes from a judicial point of view. And charge uh, these people indict these people and put them into prison, but what we were Experiencing was that all these cases uh, Were just dragging on without any results for years years and years Investigations were going on and finally many cases people were or the people who were charged left the courtrooms smiling or paying just very small fines so it was really uh, embarrassing and frustrating for us investigative journalists, so we decided okay, let's see how the judi- judiciary system works, and we spent um, basically a year uh, interviewing lawyers um, and um, prosec- prosecutors and judges and trying to find out what's wrong with the system. Are there like bribe, like uh, clearly corruption, so people are bribed in the justice system, or or is there something more complex? And our the result of our investigation was that, uh, of course, there is um, like outright uh, corruption too, so sometimes uh, even judges or prosecutors are uh, bribed, or what we were experiencing in the Hungarian judicial system is that the so-called judiciary experts uh, who play a really important role in deciding um, The the certain cases uh, they are very easy to corrupt or they were very easy to corrupt uh, at the time so the judicial system needs to be uh, reformed in in that sense but uh, the main finding was that it's much more complex so um, you don't uh, because of the fact that uh, in Hungary and all these Eastern European countries uh, the level of people with high integrity or the number of people with high integrity are not very uh, um, high or they are not very many people with high integrity Uh, in all these cases uh, people will not necessarily work hard on finding out uh, who was really responsible And nobody wants to make a decision the whole judicial system is shaped in a way that it's uh, uh, there is uh, it's very difficult to to speak up and have Mm -hmm. your opinion as a judge or as a prosecutor so very often uh, these cases are just dragging on because nobody wants to take a decision they are looking up and right and left and waiting for the others to do something so that's why and on the other side you know all these uh, people were uh, involved in corrupt activities or at least that's the suspicion they have the best lawyers so they know how to use the system in a way that they can get away so uh, our findings were i think interesting for law enforcement people and uh, people in the judiciary to find out how the system should be um, should be improved.
3: How was the book received by people in the judiciary? They uh, they were very um,
1: skeptical at the beginning when we started our work. So, uh, but after the, the book was published, uh, there was generally a very positive view uh, of. Uh, Basically, people were saying that it's uh, it describes very well the situation, and because we described a situation like a complex situation, and uh, uh, it's very also very difficult to find how to improve uh, um, and what to do next. Mm-hmm. Because if uh, interestingly enough or strangely enough, if had we found that there is just bribe, you know, people are just bribed, and that's why um, cases are not. So it would have been, in, in a way, easier to solve the situation because then you have to introduce uh, systems against uh, accepting bribes and increase the salaries of people. But uh, uh, our book shows that uh, there are a lot of cultural uh, difficulties or so the cultural context uh, defines how um, uh, these cases are not solved.
5: The NGO that you are a co-owner of is a watchdog for anti-corruption Hungary. How does the organization fulfill its mandate?
1: We created uh, this organization uh, three years ago. It started as an investigative journalism blog. So it was started by a couple of journalists who thought that the media system in Hungary is uh, highly corrupt in a way that uh, media companies and newspapers are very often owned by not non-professional investors so investors whose main objective is not to earn money with better content and um good newspapers and good online uh, newspapers but rather to buy influence uh, in politics and influence public omi- opinion along those lines so uh, we had bad experiences working for mainstream publications so that's why the idea of creating something independent and something outside the system uh, came. Mm -hmm. So that's how the NGO was created. So originally it was created to publish investigative articles and very often, very quickly, uh, new activities uh, were started and one of the main activities uh, besides uh, investigative journalism is to uh, file freedom of information requests and uh this is a very strong combination for investigative uh, to combine investigative journalism with freedom of information requests because that creates a very strong watchdog so uh, three years later now we have a um ngo which is getting more and more important in hungary the newspaper the online newspaper we are publishing with uh, articles, investigative journalism articles, and articles on uh, freedom of information requests is uh, getting more and more attention in the public opinion and also mainstream media is covering uh, the cases which we investigated, so it's a kind of a success story in Hungary. Uh, we are funded, originally we uh, it, it started like a volunteer uh, organization and after a while we received funding from big institutional donors like the Open Society Foundation and some US-based um, donors and European donors, uh, but more and more what we are uh, trying to do and we are working hard on this is to crowdfund the whole initiative, so now we have like um, 40%, hopefully more than 40% this year of our budget will be uh, funded by the readers and by our audience. We are uh, requesting or we are asking people who are following us on Facebook, who are sharing our articles to contribute um, uh, to our expenses, so Although it's an open newspaper, we say that we are looking for subscribers, although our content is not closed uh, to the outside, so everybody can freely read uh, whatever we write. But we are trying to to convey the message to our audience that this is something which costs money. We have to pay people. We have to pay lawyers. So we are asking them to contribute with uh, the price of two... um, beers in a bar which (laughs) they would drink or one uh, movie ticket per month which uh, we just calculated that if we find 4,000 people like that uh, who would contribute with a um, a monthly amount to our expenses we would be uh, highly sustainable so that's what we are working on now and it it works quite well more and more people are subscribing to what we say
3: I mean, this organization completely depends on freedom of information, freedom of the press, and I know some of your recent work has been um, speaking in regards to Hungarian public media, saying that political pressure you know, is always a fact of life in public media, but there's always pockets of professionalism, islands of freedom. But you say this has changed now, and now one party controls the public service media system. I mean, what does this mean for news available to the public in Hungary, and how perhaps is your organization providing this alternative means of communication alternative media
1: Yeah, I mean since uh, 2010 the situation has really deteriorated uh, in Hungary there is a government uh, with a very strong majority uh, constitutional majority supermajority in parliament uh, which uh, transformed uh, a lot of segments of Hungarian life so they wrote a new constitution and they were very strong in trying to Transform and change uh, the media landscape which was far from being perfect. I said in different interviews that for example the public media uh, had always a lot of problems or uh, Public media in Hungary has always been under politic under certain political pressure But the political system was such that until 2010 Uh, neither party could get a a supermajority so there was not one single party with a supermajority since the fall of uh, communism there was a coalition uh, in the 90s which had supermajority but that consisted of uh, two parties so in 2010 the the political situation changed dramatically because there was one party which could get um, a supermajority in Parliament and they were changing the media landscape in a way that for example the public they turned the public media into a like simply a very uh cunning propaganda machine uh, and um a government mouthpiece so the public media is basically just uh, broadcasting an alternative reality of everything this what's happening in Hungary which is i don't think it has anything to do with um with the the reality so they are following the government's pin they are serving the the political goals of the government and even high-ranking editors uh, gave interviews about their uh, role uh, as journalists there and it it clearly showed that they uh, they think that their main goal as public service or uh, public service uh, journalists to serve the government uh, one of them clearly said that uh, the role of um, the role of public service media is to serve uh, the government because it's finally the government uh, which pays their salaries, which of course is not true it's taxpayers' money, so government is just part of this whole system financed by the taxpayers but this is this is the general attitude in in the public media which I think is really dangerous because although public media is not the most popular uh media in Hungary so the commercial TV stations have a much uh, higher audience but still in terms of news distribution in in terms of informing uh the public the public media is still has a, still a very strong role and it's not the only thing which happened during the last uh 4 years the the government was uh did everything to change the media landscape so that uh, its power could be easily consolidated and uh, solidified and this is what happened by 2014 uh, which uh, this year there was new uh, elections like parliamentary elections uh, 4 years after 2010 and the OSCE which is a big uh, european wide uh, organization the organization for security and cooperation in europe Qualified the Hungarian parliamentary elections as free, but not fair mm. So free elections in the sense that institutionally they were free, but not fair and um, the unfairness of the elections was ma- mainly mainly um, because of the media situation so that the media was uh, not fair was uh, unfair to the opposition and biased uh, as a whole biased uh, to the government so Hungarian citizens could not get like a complex um, information about the state of uh, their country so uh, the government was trying to change the private media landscape as well they were using different methods Uh, Part of it was uh, having government-friendly businessmen, business oligarchs, who were buying out ailing newspapers and online portals, and they they were changing the editorial policies of uh, these newspapers. And these businessmen, uh, uh, they have become rich, through dealings with the state. So they they are winning public procurement tenders, they are doing state uh, standards construction businesses, highway construction, railway construction. So they are dealing with the state and they make profit uh, through state contracts and part of this profit is used to buy out media, which would then uh, support uh, the ruling party. So that was one method they used. But sometimes they are they were simply using political pressure and uh, yeah, political pressure against editorial teams which were uh, critical or independent-minded. Even if uh, these newspapers were owned by foreign multinational or Western European owners. Just recently one example showed that this was happening, one of the biggest um, news portal in Hungary owned by finally a German company, so Deutsche Telekom, which is the biggest um, uh, phone operator in Hungary, but the online portal is owned by this company, uh, was basically forced by government politicians to change Uh, key editors and also the editor-in-chief because of their critical reporting on one of the uh, ruling party politicians they were investigating the lavish travel expenses of this uh, cabinet member and because of this very like good reporting investigative reporting in fact using freedom of information requests it was something which um which uh, the government didn't like, of course, and the politicians didn't like, and they were successful in pressurizing the company to change the editorial team. So these, these are the instances and cases which are happening. And also what the government uh, is another method, like also uh, attacking uh, independent-minded newspaper through uh, uh, using economic uh, methods was to introduce a new media tax which was clearly punishing only one uh, commercial TV station, one of the biggest commercial TV stations, which still maintained the critical reporting on the government.
3: Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our time. But thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate everything you've had to share.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Thanks. Bye now.
5: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of reply. The Queen's International Affairs Association has a busy upcoming week. The Speaker Series is excited to announce an event with Queen's Professor Odette Hackley of the Political Studies Department on October 7th at 7pm in the Kin Building, Room 100. Dr. Hackley will speak about the recent Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The event is free and all are welcome. A reminder, if you are on the Queen's MUN team, Meetings are Thursdays at 7.30 in Dunning, 11. Issue 11.1 of the Queen's International Observer, the summer review is now available. www.queensobserver.org to check it out. Tune in again at 6 p.m. on October 15th for the next episode of Our Reply. We are excited to bring you new and always engaging international affairs programming.
0: You see how the times
5: have changed? Do
0: you hear the people say that Disco is dead? Disco is not dead. Disco is life. Every Thursday night, tune in to Ring My Bell on CFRC 101.9 FM, where your hosts, the Delulio sisters, play the grooviest, liveliest disco tunes from past and present. If you feel like getting in the groove, tune in at 10 p.m. every Thursday night on CFRC 101.9 FM, where Disco Lives.